Hello and welcome to the weekly sermon by White Sulphur Baptist of Georgetown, Kentucky. We hope that you find this resource encouraging and helpful. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, but we would love to see you in person on Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Thanks again for tuning in. All right, well, good morning, White Sulphur. It's good to see you all. Thank you for being here. Like was said, we're missing a few people this morning. Uh, and, and in some ways, it's actually kind of exciting. Let me explain that for a moment. Uh, there's a little church not, uh, not too far from here that is on, has fallen on some hard times. Uh, this Sunday, they didn't have anyone to preach for them. This Sunday, they didn't have anyone that could uh, lead in hymns or, or worship in any way. And so we were able to come alongside them and help them with that. We sent Luke down there to preach. We sent, uh, we sent Fred and, and Jewel down there to lead worship for them. So this is something to celebrate, that the Lord has blessed White Sulphur to the point that we can be a blessing to other churches in our association. That is something that we should be very excited about. So while I am sad to not have them with us, I'm glad for the reason that they're not here. Well, this morning we're going to be in Mark 10, 1 through 12. Go ahead and turn there if you don't have your Bibles open already. Mark 10, 1 through 12. We have named this series Good News for Hard Times. Going through the Gospel of Mark, the word gospel literally meaning good news. The good news of Jesus Christ is how Mark opens this gospel. But today we're going to be covering probably one of the hardest things that some of you or some people have gone through, some of the um, one of the hardest things that a family could go through, definitely the hardest thing that a spouse could go through, we're going to be talking about divorce. And I often say that it's my job in preaching, not just to capture the meaning of the text, but to capture the tone of the text. And so this isn't a happy-go-lucky message. This is serious and solemn and grievous in some ways. You know, most weeks, if I'm being honest, most weeks I nearly skip to the pulpit because I love what God has called me to do. I I seriously do. I I literally will, I wake up happy on Sunday mornings and excited to be here and I can't wait to get up here and share God's word with you. And this morning, it just isn't a skip to the pulpit kind of Sunday. This, this, uh, passage, preparing for it, preparing this sermon this last week, it's just been heavy the whole week. And I, I, think that's, I think that's okay for us to have a heavy Sunday when the passage, the text, the topic that we're covering is a heavy one. I don't, uh, I don't fear men's opinions when it comes to preaching. Um, I'm not obsessed with only preaching light and you know, fluffy sermons. And by now, I think that you guys... Uh, know that. This comes actually from my really deep conviction to preach expositorily through books of the Bible, starting in verse 1 of a book and working my way through it, and because that does a few things. One, it gives us a well-rounded theological, doctrinal diet of preaching. Also, it's accountability for me, that I can't skip through things that are difficult, right? I'm going to run into those passages, and they have to be Preached. It also keeps me from riding a, a hobby horse of culture or theology that I would like to spend too much time on, perhaps. And so again, this is where we find ourselves this morning. This topic of divorce, it can be really highly controversial. It's often emotionally charged. And so I'll make a request of us this morning. My request of you, White Sulphur, 
is that we calm our hearts, that we focus our minds, and we allow the infallible word of God to guide our opinions, convictions, and practice. You see, my goal is that by the end of this sermon, that our hearts would be broken for the things that grieve God. That we would be broken and repentant over our sin and the sin of our culture and the sin of our society. And then, my goal is that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of the Savior who came and died for you, binds us back up again. And we're met with his grace in the midst of our sin. And so with that, I'm going to pray for us and we're going to read our passage this morning. Father, I ask that you prepare us for your word. As we look to see what you have regarding such difficult and and weighty topics, I pray that we approach these things in humility, first and foremost myself. That we approach these things looking for your guidance only. Father, I pray for the marriages in this room a blessing over them, that you would strengthen them, that they would flourish, that you would give this church a burden to help see the marriages within this church flourish. Because it glorifies you when husbands and wives love each other rightly, as you laid out for us in Ephesians 5. Father, I pray that my words this morning would be for your people's good and to your glory alone. I pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Mark 10, starting in verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again and again and again, as was his custom. He taught them. And the Pharisees came up in order to test him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man Separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is our passage this morning. You can find the parallel passage in Matthew, but there's a couple of things that are going on that are really important for us to understand the context of the situation. If we're being honest, the Pharisees don't care necessarily about the answer to this question. They have an agenda behind asking this question. They know that in this particular region, John the Baptist has recently lost his head for saying that the governor was wrong to divorce his wife and marry another person. You see, they're trying to get rid of Jesus. They're tired of what he's doing, stirring up trouble for them, making them look foolish. And so, if they can get him to answer just right, they might get him beheaded just like John the Baptist, and that would solve their problem. So that's one motivator here. Another is that if they can trick Jesus into picking sides theologically, then they can possibly discredit him before the Jewish people. One commentator said, 
But the followers of Rabbi Hillel were quite lenient in the interpretation and permitted a man to divorce his wife for any reason, even the burning of his dinner. But the school of Rabbi Shemaiah was much more strict and taught that the critical words, some uncleanness, referred only to premarital sin. If a newly married husband discovered that his wife was not a virgin, then he could put her away. We see this kind of with Mary and Joseph, right? Before Jesus is born. Joseph thinks that something has happened with Mary, and so he decides to put her away quietly so as not to dishonor her. So he would have fallen in that camp. But really, there's these two theological traditions that are prominent in the land. And they're hoping they can get Jesus cornered into picking one so that he loses credit with the other 50%, right, of the people in the area. So what is Jesus going to choose? Which group of religious people is Jesus going to anger? Which tradition is he going to affirm and which is he going to deny? Jesus, being a master of conversation and debate and theology and all other things, he chooses neither. And instead of taking them to tradition and planting his flag somewhere there, he goes back to Scripture. He takes them back to the infallible Word of God. It says, He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This brings us to our first point. Marriage is rooted in creation. Divorce is rooted in the fall. God's original plan pre-fall was one man and one woman for a lifetime. And that's it. That was the ideal. That was the good design that he had for us. This is the ideal standard. This is what all marriages should strive for even today. Genesis 2 was the ideal world that God created this design within. And in Genesis 2, 7, it reads, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into him his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Then Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into the woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, just one thing to note here. In verse 23, we see that this is poetry. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of me. What we see is that that Adam, the moment that he sees Eve, he starts writing poetry. 
to express his feelings about her. And if we really dug into it, there's a great argument that this isn't merely poetry, but it's song. That he literally began to sing because he saw his wife and he loved her and he knew that she was for him and he was for her. And there was this beautiful moment that was happening. But we know that that's not where the story ends. Everything, including marriage, was distorted and corrupted by the fall. We don't live in a Genesis 2 world. We live in a Genesis 3 world. That is the unfortunate truth of our situation. In Genesis 3.16, God is, is cursing creation. He's cursing the man, the woman, the serpent, everything because of the rebellion, because of the sin that has taken place. And he says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And so a very prominent part of God's curse because of the rebellion of Adam and Eve is conflict within relationships. We see that when God comes looking for them, they start blaming each other. It was the woman. It was the woman. Just a chapter ago, he was writing love songs about her. And now he's trying to throw her under the bus because of the sin that has taken place. That didn't take very long. We see sin's effect immediately. It was the woman. And they're ashamed. And then they hide. They don't want to be seen by God. So we see a fracturing of relationships between man and his wife and also humans and God instantaneously after sin. And to this day, we live in a world cursed by sin. And we are still feeling the effects of that moment to this day. So what now? In Mark 10, it says, He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said... Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And they're right. Go to Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. It says this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the later man hates her and writes her, writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the later man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And so what we see is that Yes, Moses did make an allowance for such circumstances. There's actually three things going on here, two, two things that we're going to touch on briefly. God made a provision for something that he hates. He made an allowance for something that he hates because of human sin, because of hard-heartedness. And we see this in other areas of life. I'm sure you could think of some examples also, but we see this in capital punishment. God doesn't like death, right? But he makes an allowance for it in our justice system, right? The, the execution of a criminal isn't really something to be celebrated. That's a loss of a human life, oftentimes to an eternity in hell, and yet God makes allowances for things in this broken world because of the infiltration of sin. We also see an example of this. When Adam and Eve leave the garden, they've just sinned, right? They've just rebelled against God. They've committed treason 
against the king of all things. And yet, when they leave the garden, he makes for them clothing out of animal skins. Again, death to his creation that was not part of his original good design. The second thing is that the certificate implies the possibility of remarriage. Otherwise, there would be no need for it. The idea is that there are lawful reasons for divorce, which then, under the right circumstances, free the divorced person to remarry. The certificate was meant to be proof that the divorce was valid and provided a way for especially the woman to find another spouse. This was her way of going back out into a society that saw her as a second-class citizen and saying, look, I didn't do anything wrong. My husband sent me away rightly. I can remarry. The certificate implies a good reason for a divorce or at least a permissible reason for a divorce and a remarriage. One more thing that we have to make note of in the Old Testament is that God himself figuratively practices this form of divorce with Israel in Jeremiah 3.8. He says, She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. And so, of course, it may not be in the same sense or literal sense as a human marriage, but God is not above using that language in the way that he has just walked away from a people that he had a covenant with because of their faults. So far, just from the Old Testament, we can clearly see that there are legitimate cases and reasons for divorce, even though it is not the way that God designed things to be. And you might say, well, that's the Old Testament. Right? That's the Old Covenant. We live under the New Covenant. Things are different. Well, let's keep moving forward. Point number two is biblical reasons for divorce. A safe assumption is that in Mark 10, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, that he is addressing or referring to a marriage made up of two genuine believers. Right? The Pharisees really don't care what's going on in the pagan world. They're trying to trap Jesus when it comes to the Jewish people. They're trying to discredit him when it comes to the Jewish people, the covenantal people, people that believe in Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. It says, And in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. But in Matthew's account of this same conversation, conversation, Jesus says, except in the case of sexual immorality. So Jesus affirms that two born-again Christians, in the case of sexual immorality, may get divorced. But they don't have to. And we should remember that. They don't have to. Though it may be permissible, All the more is forgiveness and reconciliation permissible in this situation. We go to 1 Corinthians starting in 7, 10 through 11. Paul first, again, just like Jesus, speaks to spouses who are both born-again Christians. He says, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. He's basically quoting Jesus in Mark 10. He says, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does... She should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So Paul clearly is agreeing with Jesus that if at all possible, divorce should be avoided for Christians. But again, he acknowledges that it can and will happen. He continues on, verses 12 through 15 of 1 Corinthians 7. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, 
that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Verse 15 is key. But if the unbelieving partner separates, departs, abandons, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister, therefore the Christian, is not enslaved. The Greek word doulos, the same word that Paul uses to talk about his servanthood to Christ, that he's a slave of Christ. That's how serious this commitment is that Paul is talking about. God has called you to peace. God has called you to peace. Now, if a spouse claims to be a Christian or claims to not be a Christian or is proven to not be a Christian, then Paul says that this is a legitimate divorce. He says that the Christian spouse is no longer, quote, enslaved, again, doulos, and called to peace, meaning that they may remarry without fear of sinning. They are called to freedom going forward. And you might ask, like, what, what's an example, okay? What's an example of a spouse's actions proving that they're not a believer? And I can't, I can't treat this exhaustively in 30 to 40 minutes. But here's one example. Abandonment. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, listen very carefully. Paul says this. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That person is not a Christian. A man who fails to provide for his family, who chooses to not provide for his family, has denied the gospel, has denied the faith, is not a Christian, and in fact is worse than an unbeliever. Why would he say that? Because even unbelievers provide for their families. And this is so much worse. If a man abandoned his family, refuses to provide for them, Paul says that it's a sure sign that this person is not a Christian. Therefore, in this case, the Christian spouse is not, again, enslaved to the marriage. So let's summarize. The Bible is clear that God hates divorce, and yet because of the hardness and sin of human hearts, he has made allowances for it in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. These allowances are few, very few, such as sexual immorality and abandonment. A Christian who is divorced from a non-Christian is free to remarry without fear of sinning. No two cases of divorce are the same, so each case must be considered individually to determine its legitimacy. And this is a big one. And this is um, becoming more prevalent in our culture. That's why I feel the need to say it, is that divorce is never something to celebrate. Even in the cases where it's biblically justified, it's more akin to a funeral than a birthday. Something precious has died. Something glorious has died. Something that testifies to the way that Christ loves his church has just died. You'll never see a divorce party at this church. Christians don't celebrate divorce. We mourn divorce, even though we recognize that there are legitimate cases for it. And so number three, God's grace 
for the divorced. So you're sitting here this morning and you're divorced. Maybe you're the victim of abandonment or sexual immorality or abuse. And I need you to cling to the words of Paul when he says, but, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. And peace here is, it's more than just a calmness in a bad situation. It's trying to communicate that you should accept the divorce and the freedom that God offers to you as a victim of it. That's what you hang on to. A sin has been committed against you, and God's grace will sustain you through that. The gospel of Jesus Christ means the sorrows that we experience in this world, they have an expiration date. The sting of sin, the bite that it has into our lives and into our families will eventually be conquered. That dragon will be slayed. And in heaven, you will not feel this pain. But maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're divorced. But the difference is that you know it's your fault. You know it was your fault. You abandoned your wife and children or you committed adultery on your husband. You were not the victim, but you were the perpetrator. I need you to hear my voice this morning. There is grace and forgiveness for you in Christ. That you are not lost. That you are not hopeless. You have not committed the unforgivable sin. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, he's faithful and just to do this. This includes the sin of an, of an unbiblical divorce. No, you can't change the past, but the future does not need to be enslaved by it either. Do you realize that, that if he can take Paul, the chief of sinners, the one who is persecuting the church, killing Christians, and use him mightily for the kingdom, and take him and spread the gospel into the ends of the earth at that time, if he can use him mightily in that way, he can still use you. Your life's not over. There is hope and redemption and forgiveness in Christ. If God can call King David a man after God's own heart, remember, he literally committed adultery, and then he killed the lady's husband to cover it up. He's a man after God's own heart. The worst of us, myself included, Paul included, David included, we have our sins forgiven. He removes them from you. As far as the east is from the west, you are forgiven. That is grace. It's not something you deserve or you could earn. But it's offered to you in Christ. Nathan, you can join me at this time. You have to come to Christ in humility confessing your sins, turning away from them, and resting in the grace and forgiveness that is offered to you in Christ. But that is truly a place of humility to come to. Now there's something for all of us here. The married, the unmarried, the divorced, the not divorced, whatever the case may be, there's something for all of us here. And that is that we all play a part in helping each other down this road. 
That as brothers and sisters in Christ in the same local church, that you can come alongside those who are married and help them. What can we do to help each other's marriages flourish? We're offering a marriage series here on Wednesday nights. That's one way that you can put work into your marriage to avoid this kind of outcome. Help a couple go on a date night. Older men and women teach young men and women how to be godly spouses. We need you guys that have been doing this much longer than us. Commit to praying for your marriage and the other marriages in your church. And I mean like really commit to it. Like by name, cover each other in prayer. Cover each other's marriages in prayer that the enemy would not be waiting at the door for them to pounce and devour And if you know things are strained in your marriage, reach out. Reach out. Don't let pride suffocate your marriage. Get the help that you need from trusted Christian friends. As a pastor, I said this earlier this morning, but as a pastor, I would much rather put the hard work in now in our church and help marriages flourish than the other kind of hard work where we're picking up pieces to something terrible that has happened. So we can get ahead of this as a team, as a body, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Together, we have this opportunity. So our time of response this morning is really, it's for everyone. You know, if you've been crushed by your spouse's sin, if you've been abandoned, if you've been left, if you've been divorced, if it wasn't your fault, you respond by asking Christ for the grace and his sustaining power to continue that you might understand, come to know in a greater way, the forgiveness that is offered to you. That is how you can respond this morning. If you know that you've been in sin, it's time to, in humility, repent of those sins, turn from them, and ask the grace of God to cover you once again. And we know, like we read earlier, that he is faithful and that he will do these things. And for anyone else, just commit this morning. Respond by committing to pray for the marriages in our church, that they would be upheld, that the Holy Spirit would guard them, and that they would flourish. I'll be down at the front. Response time is not just for salvation, although that would get me very excited. If you need prayer, if you need counsel, if you need help, there are people here, but you have to speak up. Let's pray. Father, I lift up the marriages and the people in this room to you. That you would guard them, that you would protect them, you cause them to flourish, that the enemy would flee from their homes, the influences that are dragging them down, the addictions that have enchained them, enslaved them, you would free them from those things. Father, that pride would be no more in the hearts of the spouses in this church, that they would in humility ask forgiveness of each other, that they would in humility seek help outside of themselves, that they would see the greater purpose of marriage, that they would seek to reflect you in their marriages, an honest and true testimony of how much Christ loves his people. Father, help us as a whole church just to rest in the good news of the gospel that there is forgiveness for our sins. All we must do is come to you and you are faithful, and you are just to forgive us. 
Father, give the weary souls in this room rest and lead them to the truth and the light of your gospel. I pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace this morning.